Well, good morning. It's really good to be here in Edinburgh and at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, I bring you the greetings of your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, at Central Baptist in Dundee. They'll be thinking about us this morning. Uh, a word of thanks uh, and appreciation to Liam and Paul and the team here for the invitation uh, to come and, and preach. And to thank uh, not just them, but the whole team here at uh, Charlotte for their hospitality and their kindness and their looking after us uh, during the conference uh, midweek. So thank you to all who were involved in that as well and to you for being here today. Let's turn in our Bibles to the passage that was read by our brother, Acts chapter 2, uh, 42 to 47. And what we're doing this morning is we're going to look at the Acts 2, boom, post-Pentecost, right out of the blocks, church. And we're going to discern the shape of that church. What did it look like? What did the pristine Pentecost church look like? And look also at who is shaping that church. Because that is instructive for those of us who are think, thinking about church generally, but in particular church planting and church revitalization. So before we get to the shape of the church, we remind ourselves of who is shaping the church. That personal power of the Holy Spirit that accompanies us in these key tasks of planting, revitalization, and of evangelism generally. It is the power of that third person of Holy Trinity, the blessed Holy Spirit, who is so identified with the Lord Jesus that he is sometimes referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Some dec decades ago, there was a child in a primary school in Glasgow who wrote in his newsbook, parents, do you remember the newsbooks? Those parents' night in the sense of dread as the newsbook was opened up. Well, he wrote about his dad in his newsbook and the fact that his dad owned a Reliance Robin. Do you know what that is? If you don't, if you don't it was a little three-wheeler car that was rather unsteady and underpowered. Anyway, this is what he wrote. My daddy has a Reliant Robin. My daddy says he would rather have a Reliant Robin than any other car on the road. My daddy says the Reliant Robin is the best car on the road for the money. That bit's important. <laughs> this summer, we set off for Blackpool. A cultural transposition here. Uh, and during the Glasgow Fair fortnight, half the city decants to Blackpool, okay? This summer, we set off for Blackpool, but we had to turn back. The wind was too strong. <laughs> but the wind of the Spirit, that Old Testament Ruach Adonai, that wind of God, was blowing at Pentecost. And that same wind of the Spirit is blowing today. That same blessed personal power is shaping churches all over the world today. These were momentous days. The gospel was being heard in power. Thousands were repenting of their sin and being baptized. But what did that emerging church look like? 
Well, we're given some very strong clues here in Acts chapter 2. First of all, they loved Jesus passionately. How did they show that? They showed it by being into his word. The apostles' teaching that they were drinking in surrounded the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they just simply cannot get enough of Jesus. Secondly, they loved the church and showed it. You know, we need to learn it and relearn it. That that same sweep of atonement that brings us into relationship with God also brings us into relationship with those in whom the Spirit dwells. So they loved Jesus passionately. They loved the church. They looked to the cross as a defining event as they gathered around the Lord's table. They say, this is who I am. But more than that, they say, this is who we are. They were grounded in their knowledge of what happened on the cross. And fourthly, they lived prayerful lives. Prayer is the measure of our dependence on God. And they were praying a lot. Look at the impact of the Holy Spirit in them. It's not about them. It's about Jesus. It's about others. It's about the cross. It is about prayer. You know, some of what is presented... As a pastor, I I dread these words. You know, Jim, I I saw this on the internet, you know. Some of what, not all, but some of what is presented to us these days can be very alluring because we all feel weak as Christians. And then someone comes along and tells us that we can be men and women of power. No, we can't. No, we can't. We are men and women of weakness. That's putting the emphasis in the wrong place. We are men and women of weakness through whom the Spirit works in power. This is God's modus operandi, His power working through weakness. Almost every day of my life, driving into the city center to the office there, I come up to a road that's called Claypots Road. And every time I come there, I think about 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what we are, weak. And it's through us that God works in power. It's very easy to be taken in by some of these alluring messages. I was reminded of uh, my own time at primary school. And going to primary school most mornings, my friends and I would stop at the sweetie shop and stock up on our sweeties. And one of our favorites, if not the favorite, was Bazooka Joe Bubblegum. Does anyone remember Bazooka Joe? I tell you, that stuff was nigh on indestructible. You could chew it all morning, stick it under your desk, and it was good to go for the afternoon. That was really, really good stuff. But another reason that we, we loved Bazooka Joe chewing gum or bubble gum was that inside there was a little comic strip. And on the reverse side of that, there were ads, advertisements. All kinds of wonderful things could be had for $1.99 plus postage and package. But one of the, one of the advertisements was of this puny guy on a beach. And the local bully was kicking sand in his face. And we were told that for $1.99 plus postage and packaging, 
we could receive the Charles Atlas kit, which would transform our lives. Very, very attractive to prepubescent boys. But that's not really what we needed. We simply needed to grow and to mature. And the answer to Acts 2 church weakness or our church weakness, corporately or personally, doesn't come through $1.99 plus postage and packaging, but by the shaping, enabling personal power at work in the book of Acts recorded for us here. The Holy Spirit takes and makes as God's people work in cooperation with him. And so here in Acts chapter 2, they have heard the gospel from Peter and the others. They have believed, they've been born again, then baptized by water into the church. And now what happens is they begin to reveal some commonalities. They are totally into Jesus. Their instinct is to be together. They remembered the cross with others in Jesus' appointed way. And they prayed. Oh, how they prayed. First of all, they loved Jesus. Verse 42, look at it with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Well, it wasn't because they enjoyed parsing their Greek verbs on a Monday morning or a Sunday morning. Or because they had become doctrinal geeks and loved abstract theology, they don't suddenly morph into a bunch of academics who are into literature. That's not what this is about. They are into Jesus. They are into Jesus. Jesus Christ had become real to them by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the word that reveals Jesus is their focus. I love theology, but I wonder if in our churches we value the person who knows the most and not the person who shows the most of Jesus. I was pastor in a church in the Highlands for nine years. Many, many wonderful, wonderful Christian people there, but there was a kind of substratum of strangeness in some of them. That all they wanted to know was about theology. They wanted to talk theology. Actually, what they were trying to find out all the time was, was I a Calvinist? That's what they were trying to find out. So I just kept them on the hook. You know, these people really love Jesus. Do we love Jesus? You see, Peter, in his preaching in Acts chapter 2, did not park on the Pentecostal experience, important as that was. He immediately pointed to Jesus. Worship doesn't end when we put down the guitars. True worship stems not from what we feel, but from what we know. And that's why opening the word leads to worship. As we unpack the Bible, we begin to see the glory of Christ and we are drawn out in wonder, love, and praise. And something else happens. Our capacity for worship actually expands. The, no, the more we know about the Lord Jesus Christ, the more our capacity for worship expands. Because the focus of our worship is better known and understood and calls out deeper worship. Theology correctly understood and applied leads to doxology. What we know leads to worship. So how are we on the word? Or does mood matter more? 
Look at these believers. They could not get enough of the apostles' teaching. That teaching has now become inscripturated under apostolic authority to our blessing today as we open the Word of God. We are not disadvantaged in any way. It is the same power of God the Holy Spirit at work. I was at a conference in London some years ago. And every day on my way to the conference, walking along the road, I passed John Wesley's house. That great leader of the Methodist movement. If you want to know the secret of that man's life, listen to this. He says, I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few minutes hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way for this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. Here then I am, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only God is there. In his presence I open, I read his book from this end to find my way to heaven. And Jesus is that way to heaven. And that's why these New Testament believers were so into the word. For them, this was not some cerebral experience, but a personal one. As Peter preached, the scriptures began to make sense and the primary result was this, they saw Christ, not in an academic way, but in a saving way. And this must have been an incredible experience for these Jewish background believers. In my office back in Dundee, there's a little postcard that I got sent by Jews for Jesus. And it, I smile every time I read it, it says, be more Jewish, believe in Jesus. And these New Testament believers, when they saw the types and shadows of Hebrew symbolism fulfilled in Jesus, they must have been thrilled. The truth landed with them. They are talking about Jesus. They are talking about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is working in them, revealing him. We're weak, now. We're weak, aren't we? We need to look to Jesus constantly. God's people are at their best when they are looking to Jesus. Not mired up in this issue or that issue, but looking to Jesus. Even out of our weakness. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a very famous preacher of a previous generation. And he was asked this question, how do you know you're preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit? And his answer was this, you feel your weakness and your sin. And then adding that he could remember only two occasions, only two occasions when he had preached perfectly and he said on both occasions he was dreaming
So gone are the days of letter writing between lovers. And that's sad because you can't put an email under your pillow, can you? You can't sniff the scent of a text message. See, if you love someone, you want to know them. Well, they loved Jesus passionately. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because Jesus Christ had become real to them by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so one signal of the truly converted person is a new and profound desire for the Word of God. Hungry for Jesus. And that's what we see amongst these dear people here. They're saying, oh dear apostles, give us more of Jesus from his word. They loved Jesus. They were into his word. Secondly, they loved the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To love Christ is to love what Christ loves. Christ loves his bride, the church. And not just the idea or the concept of the church. Christ loves the church. Ephesians 4, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now, in my time, I've heard a lot of criticism of the church. So many people accentuate the negative at times. We ought not to do that. We get it wrong. Pastors get it wrong. People get it wrong sometimes. But remember when you're talking about the church, you're talking about the fiancé of Jesus. And I don't know a man who would allow his fiancé to be misspoken of. Believers love the church. Love the church. God is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And where God is at work by his Holy Spirit, he replicates something of that community in the church he creates. Look around. Look around. You are a disparate group of people. I said disparate, not desperate, just to be clear there. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. When the 3,000 were baptized at Pentecost, they were baptized into something. Well, first of all, someone, Christ, but also into his church. Baptism was the signal of that entry. They knew who was in and who was out because sometimes those who were in had to be put out. Matthew 18. So what about the church? What about baptism? What about membership? It's really hard to sustain a claim that you really love Jesus Christ without loving his church. It's really hard to sustain a claim that you love Jesus Christ and you're standing semi-detached from his church. That's a hard claim to sustain. Unity is the calling card of the Holy Spirit. So are you all in? Or are you a hokey-cokey Christian? You know, one foot in, one foot out. The fellowship of believers was so important. Many of these believers at Pentecost had come a distance from all over the then known world, uh, from the Jewish diaspora. 
Now they had discovered Christ and they needed to be cared for and discipled. And this is why we see what we do here. Look at what they do. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now this is not some kind of proto-communism. It was born out of necessity. It was deep, practical fellowship at work. Hospitality is a great thing. But all of this support needed cohesion. It needed people to be committed to the body of Christ. Spiritual union expressed in practical ministry. We live in such an individualistic culture. The selfie culture. But there is joy to be found in reaching out beyond ourselves to others, particularly in the family of God. My former colleague in Dundee, Angus Morrison, was converted in his late teens. And he used to say, oh, he worked in building sites with really, really rough guys at times, really hard men, hard drinking, hard living men. And when he was converted, he said, I couldn't wait on a Monday morning to get to Wednesday evening in the prayer meeting. He really needed his brothers and sisters in Christ. The fellowship and the support that they gave him. And here the issue is the same. They pull together, not because they're told to, but for them it's the natural thing to do. It's the natural thing to do. So let me ask you, I don't know much about any of you here, but I do find these days that there is a a culture of non-joiners who seem to be a little bit cool to commit. Too cool to commit. Relationship to the fellowship of God's people is a key indicator of spiritual health. It is. If you're not baptized and a member of the local church, then you need to think about that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. So they love Jesus passionately. They love his church and show it. And they look to the cross as a defining event. Every day, we read, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, this was more than lunch. Probably the Lord's table at that time was part of a a greater meal that went on. But daily... They were remembering the Lord. Bonner's old hymn is so beautiful. Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. Here grasp with firmer hand the eternal grace and all my weariness upon me lean. Here would I feed upon the bread of God. Here drink with thee the royal wine of heaven. Here would I lay aside each earthly load and taste afresh the calm of sin forgiven. What a line that is. Matthew 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it. A key indicator, God's people, 
a key indicator of the true believer is a reverence and a place for that ordinance that Christ has established. Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it. Key indicator of a converted person is that they value what Christ has instituted to remind them of the cross. Well, they love Jesus sincerely. And secondly, they love the church. They value the Lord's table. And lastly, they lived prayerfully, showing where their dependence lies. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In the temple courts and in each other's homes, they prayed. Now, we can pray wherever we like. Our great high priest and mediator makes that possible for us. We don't just have to be in church to pray. But there is a unique dynamic at work when God's people get together and pray. Sometimes in our midweek prayer meeting, we have growth groups, and then once a month, we have a a corporate prayer meeting. I remember, probably about a year ago, sitting in one of the little breakout groups that we had formed. And I was sitting with three other men, all of them much younger than me. And you know, I just listened to them pray. And it was wonderful. There is something about God's people praying together and the focus that we have upon the Lord Jesus Christ that just lifts the believer's heart. To listen to some of these senior saints praying is a treasured thing too. Where does prayer feature in our lives? They were devoted to prayer. And we are told this, and I really believe that Dr. Luke is is asking us to join the dots here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 47, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I really do believe that the Lord entrusts newborn believers into healthy churches. And all of us have a responsibility in that. All of us. It's the healthy plant that grows, isn't it? The 3,120 at this point have just, boom, come straight out of Pentecost. And as soon as they do so and the gospel is preached and they begin to learn about Jesus more and more, there is a shape that begins to form. They look and sound like this. They love Jesus passionately. And that is seen in the way that they treasure the teaching of the apostles about Jesus. They simply cannot get enough. They love the church. 
that uniting Holy Spirit that joins every believer to one another. Unity being the calling card of that Holy Spirit. They look to the cross, not primarily to experience as their defining event. They say around the table, this is who I am, but this is who we are together. And they live prayerful lives as the Holy Spirit works in them. I want to ask you this morning, is God drawing you to a deeper commitment to him? As you look at that template that I've sought to lay out before you this morning, about loving Jesus passionately, about loving the church, about looking to the cross, and about living a prayerful life, how much does that template reflect you? God is calling you and challenging you to a deeper commitment to him, perhaps involving baptism or a proper connection to this church or whatever church you attend, then speak to someone after the service. Or maybe what you've heard this morning is a bit of a mystery. And you're saying, why were they so into Jesus? Why were they so committed to his church? Why did they so treasure and value the cross of Jesus Christ? And why were they giving themselves to prayer? Was this just a mindfulness thing? No. It's because they had found Christ. Maybe you've come this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I don't want you to leave without hearing the core of the gospel. Number one, that Jesus lived. Why does that matter? Because he lived in a way that none of us could ever live perfectly. His righteousness during his life was on display. And the Bible tells us, Romans 3, his righteousness is revealed. But that righteousness, when we come to believe in him, becomes ours. He takes our rubbish and he gives us his righteousness. So that when God the Father looks upon us, he doesn't see our rubbish, but he sees his son. That secondly, Jesus died upon the cross atoningly to bring us to God. We can never ever get to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross, bearing the sin of all who would come to him. And if you come believing this morning, you can be forgiven. I mean forgiven, absolutely, completely, totally forgiven on account of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, conquering the last enemy, death. And those who are in union with Jesus Christ, those who truly believe in him, cannot be lost because they're in union with him. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus reigns. Yes, he does. He ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. And from there, he is working his will towards its appointed end. And lastly, Jesus will return. You know, talking to people, I hear it a lot. They'll say, 
well, I can't believe in God or I can't believe in Jesus because of all the bad stuff that happens in the world. Some tough questions out there, aren't there? But I'll tell you what keeps me sane. It's the knowledge that Jesus will return. It is the knowledge that he will return and every wrong will be righted. And at the end of the day, nobody gets away with anything. Everything is covered by the justice of God. And the only way to escape in that day is to cling to Christ. To run to him. To know a righteousness that is foreign but given to us. To understand the calm of sin forgiven. The hope of eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To live in the knowledge of his sovereign rule. And to look forward to his return. If you don't know Jesus, speak to someone, please. Open your Bible. It's a wonderful story of a, a young woman who turned up in Central Baptist about six weeks ago. <laughs> and she's about, she about 19, 20. And I just thought she was one of the student cohort. And she said to me, Jim, we have this thing called Connect Central that allows pastors just to sit down with people. We can talk about baptism, membership. We can talk about anything they want to talk about, really. And she said, can I come to this Connect? I said, sure you can. And when she came to the Connect class, it was clear that something had happened to her. She had had a, a connection with a young man in the United States when she was about 11 or 12, just a very innocent, modern version of pen pals things. And he was a Christian and he told her about Jesus and she was quite interested, but she came from an atheistic family, profoundly atheistic family. They'd have none of that. But she was interested. And through the mystery of the internet, they were reconnected and began to tell her about Jesus again. And she began to tune into his church in America. And eventually he said to her, you need to find the church that preaches the gospel. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to get baptized and you need to become a member of that church. And here was standing that girl, a simple, amazing work of God had taken place in her life. She started to read the Bible and she came into a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to say that for your encouragement. Because that Ruach Adonai, that wind of God is still blowing today. Our responsibility is to live worthily. To be committed to what these New Testament believers were committed so that people like my friend can come in and find a home. To Christ be the glory, let's pray. Heavenly Father, take your word and plant it deep within our hearts. What is of man, may it just fall to the floor. What is of you, may it land with us and grow to a harvest of righteousness. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Jim.
Uh, we're going to sing a song now that 